All right, will you join with me in prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you that despite the ups and downs of this year, despite the ups and downs of this week, we've made it thus far, you've sustained us. I want to thank you, Lord, especially that Ruth was able to um, make it home to Kenya, um, to be with her family during this time as they grieve her mom's loss. Um, and I, we just want to pray that you would continue to give her healing mercies so that she can be able to um, be with her family and not be in pain. Um, and that you would be with them as they go through that process of missing someone they love very much, Lord. We want to pray for, for Andy's family as well, Lord, as they're going through the same. That um, especially during this holiday season where um, they're going to miss their loved one very much, Father. We just pray that... Um, you would comfort them and draw very, very near to them. Father, we want to pray for others who are ill as well. Um, I know who they are by name, but um, just for for privacy, I won't mention them. But Father, you know who they are. You know what they've been through. You know what they're going through. And we just want to pray that you would give them healing mercies, that you would be with them and protect them and help them to get the help that they need medically, um, the logistically, that you would work things out. I want to pray for the loved ones um, of our of our church community who may be ill, whether they're grandfathers or brothers or um, children, whoever they may be, Father. We pray that um, you would give them strength as carers, that you would give them um, the ability to love and in, in, and love enduringly um, as as they support people who might be ill. Father, we want to pray for those um, who are just going through financial troubles at this time or just facing stressors. Um, you know, it's it's a busy time of year. It's a stressful time of year. And Father, we pray that we'd be able to lay our burdens down at your feet. That Father God, your Holy Spirit would give us that peace. I think about the birth of Jesus and how you you announced peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And Father, we desperately long for that peace, especially um, as we are still living through a pandemic, as we're still living through the consequences of all that has meant individually and, and, as, and as a community. I want to pray, Lord, that as we transition to meeting in person and to a new location and a new time, there's going to be some growing pains. But Father, I want to pray that you would help us to be patient with each other, that you would help us to to um, gather together and in a spirit of, of worship um, and fellowship, um, and that we'd be able to really um, experience the joy of community and worship service in person once again. Father, we want to pray for Ken and Florencia as they're preparing for baptism on New Year's Day. How exciting. We want to pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to um, mold their hearts and may they be protected from the temptations and trials that often come at this time. Father, I'm preaching a difficult message today, a message that's difficult for myself even. Um, and I just pray that as, as I share your words, um, that your Holy Spirit would help our hearts to truly listen to what you have to say and that you would help us live out um, what you have taught. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Last week I began a new series on the teachings of Jesus, um, focusing on the Sermon on the Mount found in the book of Matthew, chapters 5 to 7. And last week, we briefly examined the Beatitudes, um, the introduction to the Sermon on the, on the Mount that begins 
by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we looked at how the Beatitudes, it's not a formula, nor a command, but it's actually a blessing, right? It's a blessing. Blessed are you. It's a blessing and a promise for those who are yearning for change, for healing, for meaning, for justice, for truth, for God. And the blessing is that those who, who are uh, in need, who are broken, who are yearning, that, that they will be satisfied, that they will be filled by God not because of their good behavior or because of their strength or because of their actions, but, but simply because of God's mercy. That because we're spiritually poor, because we're hungry for righteousness, that God will provide. We saw the example of Simon Peter, who was a flawed human being like the rest of us with doubts and bad temper and bad theology. And he went fishing all night, caught nothing, and was told by Jesus cast your net again, launch out into the deep. And Jesus filled that net so much with fish that the nets are almost breaking. And Jesus says to the Peter who is now, you know, broken in spirit and, 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 and feels so unworthy, he says, don't be afraid. I will make you a fisher of men. Learn from me, follow me, live like me. I can teach you to be different. And so Simon Peter, you know, he continued to have doubts and bad temper and bad theology for many years. Year after year, he was still a flawed human being. But as he spent time with Jesus, he did change. And he became a leader in the Christian movement um, after Jesus died and resurrected. And yes, he continued to be flawed. And yes, he continued to need Jesus filling him day by day with his spirit. But Peter was able to accept and embrace that promise of the Beatitudes, that those who hunger, those in need, those who are, um, you know, recognizing and yearning for God, they will be satisfied. Today we're looking at the next part of the Sermon on the Mount called the Antitheses. So the first part is the Beatitudes. The, the next part theologians call the Antitheses because six times Jesus says a similar uh, statement. You have heard that it was said, dot, 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 but I say unto you. And so he repeats this six times, these, these uh, antitheses statements. You have heard that it was said, dot, 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 but I say unto you. And what Jesus does is he's contrasting six misinterpretations of scriptures, and then he is showing them and explaining the actual correct original intent of what God had said. So for example, and I'm just going to read the first lines of each antithesis. So there's more to each of these passages than what I'm reading to you. Um, so you'll see that by the dot, dot, dot. But um, these are the six, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 onwards. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Here's the second one. You have heard, verse 27, that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of a divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
Verse 33, Again you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill your, to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. Here's the fifth antithesis. Verse 38, You have heard that it was said, Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And the last sixth one, you have heard, verse 30, 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, these six statements Right, And I haven't read the full passages. I just read you the first few lines. If you're listening and feeling uncomfortable, well, that's exactly right. Because Jesus, when he spoke to his listeners, they were uncomfortable too. Because he was taking things that um, was the status quo, that was the accepted values, and then he, 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 he twists them by saying, hey, you've been looking at this all wrong. You've, you've been hearing from society and from community and from religious leaders even the wrong things about this topic. And I, and now I'm going to show you, Jesus says, what it really meant when G, when God first said it and what it really means for you now. Now, I thought about preaching a sermon on each one of these, but that would take us a long time. And so I want to introduce you to, uh, instead, a really great series by past, uh, Tim Mackey, who's a theologian. He's the one who made uh, the Bible Project videos. And he actually preached a really great series on the book of Matthews. And if you go to that QR code, it will take you to that series on YouTube. And I want to recommend to you specifically number six on that playlist, which is Jesus and the Torah, which looks at that um that very first antithesis, you will, you know, you've been told, um, you shall not murder, but I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So he talks about that. Um, number seven on his playlist is Jesus and sexual desire. Um, talking about what Jesus said about, about that. And then number eight, oh, number eight was, was really good. Um, it talks about Jesus, truth and spin. How when, when Jesus said, you know, you have heard that it was said, um, don't break an oath, you know, don't swear. And people often think, oh yeah, you, you don't want to use God's name in vain. And so we think we just can't swear. But actually when you dig deeper and look at what Jesus is saying, he's saying, hey, stop telling white lies to make yourself look better than you are, right? Stop being manipulative and disingenuous. Um, so yeah, really great series. Highly recommend them. And um, uh, uh, if you go to those and listen, it'll fill in for you, um, a lot of what's happening in the first five antithesis statements. Today, I want to go straight to the sixth one, the very last statement of antithesis where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So, Am I, <laughs> I, I'm not sure if, if, um, I'm being brave or if I'm being, um, extremely foolish, but here we go to what I think is one of the hardest things to, uh, to obey. So here we go, delving into Matthew chapter five, 
43 to 48. Here's, here's the whole passage. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Whew, take a breath, right? This is heavy stuff. What does Jesus mean? And how in the world can we actually live this out? Let's look a little bit closer. We're going we're gonna to look at the verses um, phrase by phrase. And we're going to start with that very first statement, right? That, that gets repeated throughout this whole antithesis section. You have heard that it was said. Notice that Jesus is saying, it, it doesn't say, oh, this is what the Bible says. This is what the Old Testament says. This is what, you know, God had revealed to the Israelites, you know, a thousand years before. No, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. Because if you search the entire scripture from Genesis to Malachi that existed, you know, during Jesus' time, nowhere in the scripture does it say to hate your enemies. In fact, quite the opposite. If you look at the, uh, the Old Testament verses that talk about, you know, how to treat your enemy, Exodus chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you falling down under its load, don't leave it there. Be sure to help them with it. Sorry, my hay fever is really bad today. Proverbs 24, verse 17. Do not gloat when your enemy falls. When they stumble, do not let your heart rejoice. Verse, Proverbs twenty five twenty one. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. I'm just going to take a sip of water. <laughs> Speaking of thirsty. And so, nowhere in the scriptures does, does it say, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. So then where did this saying come from, right? Why was it that th- those listening to Jesus' day have heard it said, Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Well, we can trace the roots back to this verse. This verse says nothing about hating your enemy, but it talks about, it's that phrase, love your neighbor. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. God said, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so, this was a verse calling people to love others, right? To, to, to not seek revenge. But what happened over the years is that as the religious leaders taught the people, um, yeah, don't hold a grudge against your own, right? And, 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 uh, don't seek revenge on your own people. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the, and, and people were, were teaching, well, who is, who is your neighbor? Um, yeah, I've got water. Thank you. Um, who who is who are my people? Well, surely it's the fellow Jews, right? Be be kind and forgiving and and treat your fellow Jews right as as yourself. Surely these are not the Roman soldiers who were occupying Israel at the time. Surely it's talking about your people, God fearing people, not the non believers. 
And so the, soon the, the teaching of Leviticus 19.18 became warped and distorted. And people started saying, not quoting scripture, but saying, love your own people, right? Love your neighbor, love your own, but hate your enemy. And they started making boundaries and distinction between who is my neighbor. And that's why the, Jesus tells a whole different parable. And this is a whole different sermon that, that, uh, that Roy preached a few weeks ago about the question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus told the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You can go back and watch uh, Roy's sermon on, on loving your neighbor. And so it's like this game of telephone where the original message gets distorted by the people, the messengers who are not great at, at communicating, at listening and communicating. And so Jesus is saying, hey, you have heard this, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but this is wrong theology. This is wrong theology. And so what's the correct theology then? So then Jesus goes on to say, in orange there, love your neighbor, right? You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So Jesus is correcting the wrong picture of God, the wrong theology by providing the right picture of God. Because you see at that time, so many people believed and so many people still believe this today, that God blesses those who are good, right? And God punishes those who are bad. Therefore, if your life is, everything's going well, well, you must be right with God. God must love you. And if your life is, is difficult and challenging and, and everything is going wrong, well, you must have done something wrong or God must really dislike you. That is wrong theology, right? And, and so, and so there were people in Jesus' day who were sick or poor and therefore ostracized by co- the community as, oh, well, you must deserve this. And Jesus hated that theology and corrected it by healing the sick, by calling the poor, right? And by ministering to those who were bad. And so Jesus corrects this theology by showing this right picture of God. And in this right picture of God, Jesus uses this analogy of something that everyone can relate to, which is, hey, you know, remember the sun? Do you remember what it feels like to have the warmth on your shoulders, the life and the light that the sun gives? Well, guess what? It's given to the good and the bad. Remember the rain, the waters that, that waters the land, that provides food for all to eat? God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. The honest farmer who treats his workers kindly and is generous and hardworking gets the same amount of sun and rain as the dishonest farmer who cheats his employees, mistreats his family, and kicks the dog. God treats people with compassion and mercy and grace regardless of their behavior or what they deserve. This is who God is. And that's not to say that God doesn't hold people accountable for their bad actions. Um, He certainly gives clear consequences. But what it is saying is that God's character, the baseline of his character, (coughs) excuse me, hey, fever season is so bad. The baseline of his mercy is so abundant, right? That we don't start out at zero. 
We start out with this abundance of mercy, and un- and and lucky for us, it doesn't get depleted at the end of our day. De- at the end of the day, when we've we've had bad behavior, but it gets renewed day by day. Lamentations chapter three, one of my favorite verses. It says it really describes a great picture of God. It says, "Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning." Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. See, because of God's great love, because of his great faithfulness, because of his mercies, we are not consumed. We have life every day. We get the sun and the rain every day. The just and the unjust. We all receive God's mercy. So if that's who God is and that's how God treats people, well, so what? You see, when we have the right picture of God, it impacts our relationship with Him, our identity in Him, and then our relationship with others. So when we go back to the text, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus reminds his hearers, Hey! You're all children of God. Children made in the image of God. We were created, every single human being, to be like Him. Of course, along the way, the choices, um, not only ours, but the choices of generations before us, have brought us far from the image of God, right? So we are, we are not like God in so many ways. But deep inside which each one of us, in our DNA, we were created to be like Jesus, to be like God. And those who understand what God is like, right? His character of mercy and love, his ability to, to show compassion on, on everyone equally, all those who are undeserving. When we understand that, it impacts us, it changes us, it, it challenges us, it inspires us. Because Jesus is saying, hey, if you love those who love you, your own people, Right? Like the Jews for many years had been saying, love your own people, those you like, those who think like you, those who share your political views or your social values or your DNA or your social economic status or your lifestyle or your hobbies, etc., etc. If you only love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And, and, and Jesus is not saying that. Because he thinks tax collectors are the worst people. He's using that as an example because he knows that his hearers think they are the worst people. In that time, tax collectors were considered the lowest of the lows in that first century Judean society because they were traitors for their own people. They were selfish individuals who, for the love of money, stole from their own people to give to the Roman colonialists, right? And Jesus knew that the listeners hated tax collectors, so he uses them as, a, as an example on purpose. Hey, 
those people that you despise, those tax collectors, even they treat their friends well, right? And here's another dig, you know, Jews at that time also thought that they were better than the non-believers, pagans. So Jesus uses their prejudice once again to say, hey, you know those pagans that you think have lower morals than you, right? Even they are kind to their own tribe. You, you think you're better than the tax collectors and the pagans. But guess what? If you really are better than them, then you should be treating them with love. Love the people you can't stand. Love the people who can't stand you. Then you're really acting like children of God. Then you are perfect like the Father is perfect. And the Greek word for perfect here doesn't mean flawless. It means mature. It means mature. Because children grow up to become mature adults, right? That's the goal anyways. And Jesus is inviting his listeners to accept we are children of God, called, right? We have the image of God in us and God is calling us to bring that out, to, to bring that to maturity, right? So that we can treat people the way that he treats people, with mercy and compassion and love. But what does it mean to love our enemies? Does it mean that we have to feel warmth towards them, right? Well, Love in English, you know, we, we say love for lots of things. Like, I love cheese, but I also love my husband Roy, and I love my children, and I love my friends, and I love our church, and I love, you know, Melbourne, but those are all very different kinds of love. And in the ancient Greek, there's, there's actually, um, I said six here, but I clearly did not count correctly. Um, it's, it's not six, it's eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight. So ignore that. Eight ancient Greek words for love. And um, for example, there's eros love, which is like the, the romantic, sexual, passionate love. There's the philia, which is the, the affectionate love you have between friends. There's um, the love you have between family, etc., etc. But if you go to the very last one listed there, there's something called agape love. Agape love is selfish, selfless, sorry, excuse me, selfless, universal, unconditional love. And this is the word that is used when, when it's describing God's love towards us. Now the question is, which Greek word for love did Jesus use when he asked his hearers on the Sermon on the Mount to love our enemies? Did he ask us to have romantic love for them? No. Did he ask us to have affectionate friendship love for them? No. Let's look. This is... um the interlinear, you know, English and Greek there. And you, you look at the arrow and it shows you the word for love that the Greek word for love there is agape love. Agape love. Jesus says, hey, you are my children and I want you to become like me. I love with agape love and I'm asking you to love with agape love. It's not an emotional love of warm and fuzzy. It's a love that treats people regardless of whether they deserve it or not, regardless of what they have done, regardless of who they are. It's a love that treats people with equal love, respect, and dignity as recognizing that they also are children of God. It's a mindset. It's a way of seeing people the way that God sees them. 
And as Tim Mackey says, it, um, it's, it's about seeing people. Yeah, they're flawed, right? But we often focus on their flaws, but we forget that we are, we are flawed too. We're flawed in a different way than they're flawed, but we're flawed too. And, and so it's about seeing the good, seeing the image of God in them that I have as well. That are, that it's a different image of God in me that they have. Everybody ha- reflects a different character of God, and it's about being able to 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 see their, the image of God in them. Loving our enemies with this agape love means I have no right to treat them with any less dignity than I would like to be treated by them or by anyone else. I may disagree with them. I may not share as much time or personal life with them as as I would my family and friends, but. I am called to show respect to them instead of disdain, hatred, or bitterness. It means treating people better than they deserve because we recognize that God treats us better than we deserve. Michael J. Wilkins, who wrote the commentary for the book of Matthew, the NIV Bible Application Commentary Series, He describes this agape love as an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person in which I give myself to bring the relationship to God's intended purpose. And he says, you know, you you might not be as committed to this person as you are as committed to your family and friends, but you are committed nonetheless to answering the question in every one of those relationships, what does God want for this relationship? And how can I best give myself to bring it about? That's a challenging question, right? What does God want for this relationship? Not what do I want from this relationship, but what does God want for this relationship? And how can I best give myself, right? This is that agape love, the selflessness, the giving of yourself to bring that about. Or as C.S. Lewis said, you are not to do anything that demeans a person's dignity, right? And and C.S. Lewis said, you have to do everything you can to promote God's glory in that other person to bring out the image of God in them. One of my favorite writers, Ellen White, wrote, the children of God are those who are partakers of his nature. It is not earthly rank, nor birth, nor nationality, nor religious privilege, which proves that we are members of the family of God. It is love. A love that embraces all humanity, Even sinners whose hearts are not utterly closed to God's spirit will respond to kindness. While they may give hate for hate, they will also give love for love. Right? Even Adolf Hitler, I'm sure, was loving to his family. But it is only the spirit of God that gives love for hatred. To be kind to the unthankful and to the evil. To do good, hoping for nothing again is the insignia of the royalty of heaven, the short token by which the children of the highest reveal their high estate. This is not an easy calling. I'm I'm sharing what Jesus said, and it hits me to my core because I've been guilty of loving my neighbors and hating my enemies. It's so easy to gossip about people we don't like, It's so easy to feel bitterness towards people who um, have hurt us, to write off people that we disagree with. It's so easy to dehumanize individuals by ridiculing them, minimizing them, ostracizing them. 
And we, and we do this all the time with politicians and celebrities, as well as people that we know personally or casually. But Jesus gazes into our hearts and he sees our hypocrisy. He sees our judgmental and critical attitudes, our pride, thinking that we are better than them, our prejudice against those whose situation, frankly speaking, we have not walked through. He sees it all, but loves us anyway, right? He sees the darkness within us, but he loves us anyway, and he invites us to love anyway. To see with his eyes the image of God in every single human being. To do all that we can to bring out that image of God in others. He fills us with his agape love and transforms us, right? so that we can then transform our relationships and our community. Jesus says that when we treat our enemies, those we don't like and those who don't like us, with agape love, it is the most God-like thing that humans can do. It's, it, this is when the image of God that is built within the human DNA is most fully expressed when we love our enemies. And this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. So who is Jesus calling you to love today? I have someone in my life that I know Jesus is asking me to, to love better. Several someones. What about you? Who is Jesus calling you to see differently today? Who is Jesus calling you to treat with dignity and respect? Who is Jesus calling you to forgive or to release judgment of? And what can you do to show kindness towards that person? It's almost Christmas. What a perfect time of year to show agape love. The Christmas is, that Christmas is about a God, right? The story of a God who loved the world so much that he humbled himself and became a human baby. And that baby grew up every day of his life loving his enemies, forgiving the kids who bullied him as he grew up because his mother had him out of wedlock, they said. You know, forgiving those individuals who were flawed and, and, and hurtful, right? And that when he, when he grew up and called disciples, he didn't call disciples who, 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 who were perfect. He called disciples who were divided and difficult and as different as could be. And yet he called them all and he spent time with them and he loved them all, even Judas Iscariot, who would betray him. He treated with kindness anyone and everyone who needed his help. He treated everyone with dignity and respect. As the Roman soldiers whipped his back and nailed him to the cross, Jesus prayed for them, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. As the religious rulers mocked him, saying, You saved others. Why can't you save yourself if you're really the Messiah? And as they were insulting him, Jesus gave his life for them. As people cursed at him and spat on him, and they cried out for his blood, Jesus loved them. Romans chapter 5, verses 7 and 8 says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. 
But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus loved us while we were still sinners. While we were all flawed and broken and full of hate, Jesus loved us. What are we willing to do to show agape love to our enemies? What can we do this Christmas season to bring about the best in humanity? Not just in ourselves, but in others. Christmas is a time when we might be seeing family members that are just difficult to be with. How can we embrace and accept God's agape love for us in our undeserved state so that we can extend that agape love to them? What can we do, practically speaking, to restore right that right image of God, to restore that right relationship where we treat everyone, regardless of who they are and what they've done, with respect and dignity as children of God? What can we do practically to become Christians, to become like God, and to truly love as He loves? I pray that as we wrestle with this question, and as we pray through this question, that we will answer God's prompting in our hearts to love with agape, love our enemies. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, it's a tough challenge. But Father, we know that all things are possible with you and that it doesn't start with us, this love, this commitment to treat people with respect. It only can happen when we renew ourselves day by day as followers of you, confessing, and I confess it now, that, Father, I have treated and, and, and said things and done things that have not treated people with respect in the past. And I'm so sorry for that, Lord. And I ask at this time that you would forgive me and everyone listening, that you would help us to, to see with your eyes, to love with your love, so that as we, as, as people who profess to be Christians, practice this agape love, that that love can transform the community, that love can transform this city, that that love can transform our world so that people can truly see that we are followers of you, that they can see the right picture of you, and that they would want to be disciples themselves. Jesus, you, you said we are the salt of the earth and that we're meant to be a blessing to the world. Forgive us for the times that we have not been salt of the earth. We've been bitter and sour, but we haven't brought flavor. We haven't brought blessing. We haven't brought healing. We haven't brought preservation to our communities. And Father, we ask that as we, as we, as we wrestle through this Sermon on the Mount, as we wrestle through what, what you're challenging and calling us to do, that we would respond to, to be your disciples, to, to, to really surrender our hearts to you and allow you to make us your children of God, to, to grow us into maturity in you. Thank you for, for the promises that you have already given that when we are hungry for righteousness, that when we are poor in spirit, that you fill us and you provide. And we claim that promise today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.